Are there medications um, that exist that are used in the treatment of paraphilias? Yes, one of the definitions of a mental illness, not the only one, but many definitions of mental illness do talk about whether or not the condition in question requires treatment. Uh, there are medications that are used in treating these conditions, recognizing the driven nature and trying to decrease the intensity of the drive as a means of trying to increase a person's ability to be better in control of themselves. It is clear based upon what you have learned that Mr. Dahmer, during the course of the years from 83 through 87 and even in the 89 and in the 90, whatever, was in fact in a position where he uh, was being observed by others such as the court system and by probation officers and psychologists and in fact psychiatrists. Well, I'm aware there were times when he was on probation. I'm aware there are doctors, excuse me, that he's seen. I'm, I'm aware of the, the facts that you're describing. Was he at any time, based upon what you've been able to learn, being treated with any kind of medication that would normally be uh, dispensed by a psychiatrist for a person with a paraphilic or disorder? No, he's never received treatment for this disorder. Uh, I think there was, as I mentioned earlier, denial and rationalization. I don't think at, at a certain point uh, he even um, saw the need for it. I think he gave up at one point and, and, and wasn't even, the, the, the power of what was driving him uh, basically took over and he, he didn't have any interest in his own on seeking out treatment. You, did you discuss with Mr. Dahmer as to why he did not seek treatment for the paraphilic disorder or to stop these killings? Yes. What did he tell you? He told me several things uh, and I also made several observations. It wasn't only a matter of what he told me. Uh, but he talked about, um, well, let, let, me, let me back up on this. Uh, he did tell me there was a time when he was trying, so maybe I better put it in a historical sequence. Please do. Uh, Mr. Dahmer um, tells me, and again, he's told others, but I'll just talk about what he's told me, um, that he committed uh, the first killing in, in Ohio, as we talked about earlier, when he was about 18 years of age. Uh, there'd actually been what I would call a near miss before this, where he'd been... Uh, uh, riding a bike and had a club and was thinking about it. Thank God didn't, but tragically then ultimately did the first killing in Ohio and apparently was quite appalled at himself afterwards and, and then went, as we've talked, for about nine years uh, fighting this. He, he uh, went into the service where there was a lot of structure present for a couple of years, uh, had some drinking problems, came out, uh, went to live at his grandmother's house, uh, for a period of time was going to church and, and praying and, and, and trying to do that. Uh, it was during that time period after the first killing and between the second where the examples I gave earlier came into play. He had thought about perhaps going to a cemetery and, and getting a body, he was still having these urges and desires, but that was something he thought might help him to not succumb to them. I gave the other example of, of uh, the mannequin and he took a mannequin from a store and, and again I tried to do that. Um, there was an incident that occurred uh, during this period when he wasn't acting where a man in a library approached him and propositioned him sexually. He'd also, he tells me, and I, I, it was my judgment he was telling the truth on this, uh, trying not even to get into the gay lifestyle. Um, ultimately, after that incident, although he didn't go with that particular man, he got back involved in the, in the gay lifestyle. Um, he ended up um, not killing but starting to go and, and, and uh, put uh, things in the drinks of people at bathhouses and so on so that they would be 
kind of in this half dreamlike state, but still not crossing the line of another death. And then apparently in a very intoxicated state, uh, going to the Ambassador Hotel, and I, I think clearly the evidence supports it wasn't planned, because he had no escape plan, he hadn't arranged to be able to get rid of a, a body, uh, apparently wakes up in this drunken stupor with this man next to him dead, and there's no doubt in his mind who's, who's killed him, but I, I, he says he doesn't remember, and I suspect he'd blacked out from intoxication and, and, and so on, and uh, then figured out a way, since the body was there, to, to, to ultimately get it out. And what he tells me at that point is that, you know, he, he in a sense, fought the good fight. Here he is with this dead body. Uh, this disease was, uh, he didn't use the word disease, I'm sorry, I'm going to be aggravated. Th these urges, this compulsion is the word that he would often use, uh, it was overpowering him. Uh, perhaps it was his destiny to do it. Maybe it was the work of the devil. He started trying to, he was perplexed and trying to understand it and totally demoralized. And at that point, I think, really gave up trying and simply allowed the disease to go on unchecked. You feel that uh, that was his choice, was it not? Okay, now that, I'm sorry? That was his choice not to, to, to continue. I think he was fighting very hard for many years, is the point I'm making, not to give in to these urges. I think, as I said, he became overpowered and, and, and demoralized and, and just, uh, metaphorically speaking, was beaten by the disease and just ultimately gave up trying. And uh, without repeating the definition that I've asked you three or four times, it was at that juncture that he had a mental disease, as you have told it, and well, how it I think he had the mental disease uh, throughout, but certainly it was becoming more and more uh, severe, and uh, of course it was becoming more and more severe, more and more impairing, and so I, I'm describing a progressive disease that ultimately gets uh, quite out of control. You feel, based upon your knowledge and experience as a clinical psychiatrist, a psychologist, and a doctor running the sexual disorders clinic, that Mr. Dahmer was honest with you during the time that you were talking to him? Fundamentally, during the time when I was talking to him, I, I think he was. I think he had been earlier on. As I said, there were some distortions uh, in terms of what he'd said to people earlier. I was trying to look at whether he was honest. I was looking at what he'd told other people to see if it was consistent and try to make a judgment about how to weigh what he was saying. I mentioned earlier he'd held back in the confession about the drilling of the holes. But to, to, again, to answer your question, I'm cognizant of not getting off the point. The answer is yes. I felt that when I was speaking to Mr. Donner, uh, Dahmer, he was essentially honest with me. That was my opinion. Did Mr. Dahmer at any time try to point the finger at some other outside force uh, that caused him to do this, or did he accept the responsibility? He accepted. As I said, he was perplexed. He kind of wondered in a philosophical way about whether this was uh, an evil force, the work of the, the devil. But, you know, as I pushed him, he was trying to see, as I said earlier, if he was ill. Um, he didn't wasn't blaming it on that. He wasn't saying it was that. He, he was just trying to figure it out, but basically said, uh, I'm responsible. I've got the answer to God, things of that, that nature. You were aware of the fact of his confession? I'm sorry? You were aware of the fact of his confession? Yes, sir. I, I had seen the confession um, prior to seeing him. And did the things that you talked to him, uh, were, they, uh, were they consistent with his confession? Yes, obviously, um, when there's this volume of material, people aren't going to have verbatim what they said before. In fact, it was verbatim, you'd wonder if they memorized it. But essentially, and I already talked about it, some of the discrepancies, but essentially he was telling me pretty much the same thing. How about prior to him being arrested? Uh, there was a, did you come to learn whether or not he had been honest in the past when he was dealing with people? Yeah, that, that was an entirely different uh, situation. He had been very... Uh, 
dishonest. As I mentioned earlier, I think that he'd reached the point of, of giving up, of, of not even wanting help. I, I think he was in denial. I think he was, uh, well, I won't repeat myself, but no, absolutely, he was not honest uh, with a number of people with whom he was involved uh, prior to the time that he had been apprehended. Could he have been able, uh, during the course of uh, this uh, paraphilia problem that he was having, to have uh, been able to sustain himself by just uh, engaging in other kind of uh, self-abuse or other kind of self-conduct uh, such as masturbation or just looking at videos or things of that nature? Goodness, I mean, if it was so simple that, you know, by masturbating, we could stop it. We could have you know, people would come into the office three times a day. We'd have them masturbate, and that would be the end of the problem. In fact, to the contrary, and I'm going to choose my words carefully. This isn't meant to be a sick pun, but th th there are many cases where masturbation can actually whet the appetite in the long run, increase the risk rather than decrease the risk that the person will act. So no, the, the idea that he kind of could have uh, treated it himself by just masturbating more would be a very naive notion. I don't want to, I'm going through some of my notes, so I don't go over the same uh, area. Okay. It is true, is it not, that at some time during the course of these years from 78 through 91, that Mr. Uh, Dahmer uh, did try and stop, as you have expressed it, uh, these... Uh, paraphilic urgings. Does that, in, does that in any way uh, change uh, your conclusion that at all, at any other time, he, he could have stopped? I'll make sure I understand the question. It's a little um, uh, complicated. Um, I said that I thought he had tried for many years, and, and he claims that he did. And in fact, we know no evidence to the contrary. This people have looked very, very closely from around the country at whether he's done other homicides. So. There's simply no evidence whatsoever that he's killed anyone other than the people that we know about. So that gives credence to the idea that he was able, uh, and, and he did uh, fight uh, over many years uh, successfully uh, to control this. Um, if I understood your question, I may not have. I think you're asking me if the fact that he stopped trying changes my decision, or am I missing yes. that? Okay. Um, no, I mean, the, the issue really is, does he, as a result of this illness, lack substantial capacity. I think it's tragic that he reached a point where he felt so beaten down by the illness that he stopped trying. It would have been nice to even fight further, but that's not the issue. The issue is, even if he had been trying, would he have been able to succeed? Was he having an illness that substantially impaired his capacity to conform his behavior? So uh, the fact that he stopped trying is, is, is sad. The fact that he got overwhelmed and and, and quit, and, and so it is, is, is a shame, but it's not uh, changing my opinion in terms of whether he had the disease or whether the disease became so severe as to cause him to lack substantial capacity. Now, based upon everything you learned and everything you read, do you have an opinion as to whether or not, and based upon mostly talking to Mr. Dahmer, that his uh, behaviors were in any way uh, considered to be racially motivated or crimes of hate against people of different uh, persuasion? Yeah, I, Yes, I have an opinion. Absolutely um, not. In fact, um, to, to make the point that in, in a sick sense, it's actually the contrary. My, my colleague John Money, in writing about the paraphilias, used the word love sickness and, and made the point that it's, it's broader than only sexual arousal. It's also a sense of wanting to sustain a relationship, an intimate relationship 
with an individual that 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 is that is being uh, expressed in the paraphilias. And uh, again, if we look at, at Mr. Dahmer, um, he, he was feeling that he wanted to be close to these people, and his sick thinking somehow by eating them and ingesting them, he was closer. Somehow by uh, continuing to uh, caress them after death, he, he was sustaining the relationship. So in, in a very sick way, it's obviously sick to talk about this as, 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 as wanting to maintain a relationship, but he really wanted a closeness. He wanted to be relating to these people. He wasn't hating them. He wasn't mad at them. Uh, he wasn't trying to torture them. He, he repeatedly talked about, and I know it doesn't diminish how awful it was, but, but his concern that, that they not be suffering, that, that they were all asleep when, when, when they ultimately died. So there isn't a shred of evidence that I've seen to suggest that these are hate crimes, that these are racially motivated crimes. Uh, quite to the contrary, they're the sick crimes involving uh, lust and even a distorted way of trying to maintain closeness in a relationship. Did you determine the size and the physical structure and the age of the persons that were the object of his uh, behaviors? Yeah, they had a certain physique and, and build. They, you know, they, what you'd expect, they were the kind of people that were attractive to him. You know, he's not really dangerous to a woman. He's an extreme example because that's not the person that is in the fantasies. It's not the kind of preoccupation he has. These were really the reenactment of, of the fantasies. So it was a particular build and appearance. They tended to be young males. Uh, uh, but uh, again, he, he wasn't hating people because of color, any of that. Uh, any of that. With the condition that you told us that Mr. Dimer was suffering from, did he himself, as he's going along on these killing spree, does he understand his own motivations? No, I, I think he, he really doesn't. There's many examples of that. For example, he said many, many times in each of the killings, uh, not each of them, but in many of them, uh, when asked why he killed them, he would say things like, um, uh, I didn't want them to leave. I decided to kill them when they weren't going to leave. Um, those folks, if they had decided to stay, I'm afraid, tragically, were, were still going to end up dead. He was responding to these sick cravings. Uh, so his thinking that, gee, if, if they really would have stayed a little longer, um, you know, it would, everything would have been okay, uh, I don't buy that at all. I, I'm, and now again, I'm, distinguished, I'm not saying that's dishonesty. I said I thought he's being honest. But in terms of understanding it himself, and, and, and clearly we see confusions at times and many times he talks about being overpowered by this compulsion and and not being able to handle it and then kind of wondering well gee maybe uh there's uh, evil forces that are doing it he's very uh, perplexed and does not have any real insight or understanding regarding his own disease i would like to ask you your opinion as to one making a claim that mr dimer would be simply evil uh, uh, engaging in moral misconduct do you have an opinion as to whether or not that's what mr dimer was doing we look, you know, I look very carefully at that. I might have phrased it slightly differently, but, you know, one of the things we don't want to do is this, uh, I don't want to do, I'm sorry about this, we, that I don't want to do as a physician or psychiatrist, and, and, and psychiatrists have been accused of doing, is, is I don't want to uh, relabel sin as psychopathology and, and, and get someone off the hook, so to speak. So I want to be very careful not to have that happen. Uh, but having said that, I also want to be balanced and objective, and, and the, the, the mistake can occur in the other direction. I also don't want to take someone who clearly is very ill and impaired out of their illness and make the mistake that this is someone who's got a fully intact mind who's simply misbehaving. So I looked at, at both sides of that and, and even got into this concept of, of evil. You know, one, one way of expressing it is why do you do it because he's evil? And, uh, uh, you know, what tells us it's evil because he did it? It's sort of a label that masquerades as an explanation. It doesn't really explain anything. Uh, and then the other way is to try to see if science and medicine can help us have a better understanding. Is there knowledge out of the work we've done 
uh, that tells us that there are diseases such as paraphilias? Is there knowledge out of the work we've done that says that people do have fantasies and, and urges? I mean, unless Mr. Dahmer uh, called me up or read DSM-3R between the time in which he was arrested and gave his confession uh, to find out what the DSM-3R said, his words are almost a textbook description. So my point is that I felt that there were pieces of information out of my knowledge and my expertise that would help me understand this as something a bit in a more sophisticated way than simply thinking it was evil. And again, to repeat, because I didn't want to lose it, I, I am rambling a bit. I did want to be sure we weren't excusing sin by calling it psychopathology, but I also wanted to be sure, and that was my final conclusion, that we weren't saying someone was simply misbehaving when indeed they were ill and very impaired out of that illness. I only have a few more questions that just kind of cover up. They've been asked. Uh, hopefully they're not so repetitious, but I still think they're necessary. Are the psychiatric opinions that you have rendered here today made to a reasonable degree of psychiatric certainty? Yes, and I can summarize if you want why, but just to answer your question directly, yes. Is the mental disease that you have ascribed to Mr. Dahmer is that made to a reasonable degree of psychiatric certainty that he was suffering from that mental disease each and every one of the charged homicides beginning with the one that took place after the Ambassador Hotel in 1987? Yes, sir. Is your opinion that he lacks substantial capacity to conform his conduct to the requirements of law on each and every one of those occasions made to a reasonable degree of psychiatric certainty? Yes, sir. Is your opinion that his substantial capacity was lacking because of the medical, med mental disease that you've ascribed to his condition made to a reasonable degree of psychiatric certainty? Yes, sir. Do you have an opinion to a reasonable degree of psychiatric certainty whether or not as he progressed along this killing spree, his capacity was becoming more affected to a greater degree than the just prior to killing. You understand my question? Yes, and I do have an opinion. Uh, I can tell you what it is, and if you want me or don't want, I can explain it depending on what you want. But the I do have an opinion, and my opinion is that as time went along, the disease became more severe, that it was more progressive. And that because it became more severe, the impairment became progressively more severe. Was the impairment ever absolute? <sighs> Let me answer it this way. No, not, not to the point of if a policeman was standing there watching him, he would have done it. But it certainly got very close to the point where he was doing it with a policeman almost standing there watching. And if you want me to explain that, I, I, I can do that. When, when was it that his impairment got to the point? Well, strike that. If he did it when a policeman was there watching him, how severe then would the impairment have been? Well, I, I, I hope it didn't get lost, sort of said I have to decide about this concept of, you know, he's got this disease, does it cause him to lack substantial capacity, and that nowhere did it say that he has to lack all capacity. I suppose if he was going to do it with a policeman standing there watching him, we'd have to say this is a person who had no capacity whatsoever, and I don't think that such a person exists, and if that were the criteria, I suppose we wouldn't be even in a court of law addressing the issue, because it'd be an issue that was moot. But about a situation in regards to the Dahmer case, based upon what you have learned, when Mr. Dahmer's impairment affecting his uh, capacity became so strong that you want to tell us about when, when it rose to that level with a policeman at his, at his elbow. 
Well, uh, I'll, I'll describe, uh, you know, because I'm trying to give the people an understanding of how I thought about this so they can decide if it makes make sense to them. Uh, let, let's start with the, the, it's all tragic, as I say, the tragedies, but it's all tragic, but the, the, the tragic situation um, with a young Laotian boy, and, and I'm sorry, I'm afraid to stumble over his name, so I don't want to try it, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but the, the young Laotian boy was taken uh, back into his house by the police officer who had no way of understanding what, what was happening. At that stage of things, uh, Mr. Dahmer, at that point, um, uh, was in a situation uh, where he was um, on probation for a prior offense. Um, there was a body lying in, in, in the other room when the policeman uh, came in with this young boy. Uh, he then, the police then brought the young boy back in. Uh, there was all sorts of concern in the community, so bunches and bunches of people knew that the last place that this young boy had been seen was going back with the police in, in, into this home. Uh, Mr. Dahmer then proceeded to kill that boy with the other body in place. Uh, he took no steps at that point to, to sort of lie low or to get out of there, the sense that people are right on his tracks. Again, uh, the idea is the police are, you know, who are they going to think did it if this young boy ends up not showing up? There were kind of all these witnesses. He proceeds on to the point where he's continuing again. He kills another fellow. He then brings in yet another man while there's a body actually in, in the bathtub. He lets it behind the shower curtain and the, the fellow he brings in goes to the bathroom, doesn't even realize there's a body there. Mr. Dahmer hasn't made absolutely sure that other guy isn't going to be able uh, to leave. So, so that's going on. Uh, it's reached a point where he can't even maintain his job for a while. In spite of all this, he somehow managed to hold on to his, his, his job. Um, to me, at this point, I mean, that's about as close as you can get to the policeman at the arm. The, the bodies were lying there decaying. The smell was awful. He was leaving the, the building unattended while bodies were, were laying there. Uh, though that's a part of the evidence that I looked at, suggesting that he's reaching a point where he's virtually, not totally, but virtually totally out of control. Now, I said even earlier on, I think there was still some evidence. And, and by the way, he drew a graph of of the killings that would just go up in an exponential way compatible with the idea that, that someone's out of control. Uh, but even earlier on, uh, for example, he had been um, awaiting a sentencing in an instance where he'd been uh, charged with um, taking pictures, uh, again, tragic irony of someone that turned out to be the brother of the Laotian boy I just talked about. He was on probation. Well, before he was on probation, he was charged with that. During the period of time between when he was charged with that and he was sentenced, he committed yet another killing and then took the skull from that killing and put it in his locker at work during work release because he needed to be close to it under circumstances where he's being watched closely, where that's evidenced, you know, in that setting that's incredibly damaging. So even back then, you know, we're not just having a, a, a guy who just seems to be uh, sort of cooling it when he's under pressure and so on, but certainly by, by the end. Where, where the bodies are piling up and so forth and so on, I think he was just about completely out of control at that point. Doctor, uh, the mental disease that you've stated, you called what again? I called the disease necrophilia. Did that disease, cons you considered in your expert opinion that to be an impairment of the mind? Well, I mean, if that's not an impairment of the mind, and I don't, oh God, I hope I'm not trying to sound snarky, but you know, if that's not an impairment of the mind, I don't know what is. Does that impairment of the mind is that an enduring or a transitory type of thing in the person of Jeffrey Dahmer? It's clearly, in this case, been enduring and even progressive. 
It's clearly which? It's been both enduring and progressive. Does that condition of the mind substantially, to a reasonable degree of psychiatric certainty, affect the mental and emotional processes of Mr. Dahmer at the time that he committed each and one of the, every one of these offenses? Yes, sir. And you make that uh, opinion to a reasonable degree of psychiatric certainty? Yes, I mean, it's fundamental to his mental processes. We're talking about the mental processes themselves that are the very essence of what this is all about. Doctor, did you have occasion to look at pictures that were taken, some virtually 500 different Five, three more minutes. That's why I'm just finishing up now. I thought maybe... I'm, lo I'm looking for a breaking yeah, point. Yeah, this would. I, I think I should just finish up. Okay, we can. Uh, uh, well, I tell you what. Maybe it's a good time to break. I just double check my notes, and then I won't have to do much upon return. But I, I think I can just five or seven more minutes. I just don't want to say five or seven more minutes when we come back. I got three more questions. Okay, I, why don't we break now, Judge? Courts and recess. All right, please. Jeffrey Dahmer, according to the doctor who testified just now, suffered from the disease necrophilia in each and every one of the 15 killings he is charged with. So bad was that suffering from the disease that he couldn't control himself. That's the opinion of the doctor. That's the opinion of Jeffrey Dahmer's lawyer. If Gerald Boyle can persuade, persuade at least 10 of the 12 jurors to believe the same thing, Jeffrey Dahmer would have to be found insane. This is a disease that... Uh, the things that Jeffrey Dahmer thought about, according to this doctor, Frederick Berlin, the normal man couldn't even force him to, himself to think about this, much less drive himself to fulfill his desires or his urges. The doctor said this is much more than misbehavior. It is severe mental illness. The doctor said, like people with depression who have constant depressing thoughts and can't simply uh, have control of their minds and who have depressing thoughts and can't get those thoughts out of this mind, he said that... Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was sick and couldn't control it and couldn't say, I want these thoughts to go away, so disappear. He said that simply was not the case. Uh, he said, if this isn't a mental illness, then I don't know what is. The doctor went on to say that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's behavior was not a voluntary decision whatsoever and that we don't have to know the exact cause to know that it is a mental illness and a mental disorder. And he said there is some evidence that, it, that uh, this type of mental disorder has its basis in a uh, uh, the biology of the human being he also said that Jeffrey Dahmer was simply unable unable to stop himself and that his willpower was not enough to stop him in his medical opinion he said Jeffrey Dahmer was out of control and could only be stopped by an outside force and that is exactly what happened he said he gave up trying to control himself when the murder spree began here in Milwaukee and that he had been fighting it for years. Now, that is a point that District Attorney E. Michael McCann most likely will pick up on and hammer away at, that he did try to control it, and he was able to... ...said that Jeffrey Dahmer suffered from this disease, necrophilia, in each and every one of the 15 killings. We're going to come back in just a minute, and we're going to talk about uh, the medical argument of necrophilia and whether or not Jeffrey Dahmer could control his behavior. Um, right now, well, instead of taking a break right now, actually, we'll ask Joanne Williams, my colleague, to step in here.
Joanne, you have a, uh, a medical expert here to talk with you about this. Yes, I do. Thank you, Dan. Uh, today we have uh, Tyrone Carter, who's a psychologist with us today. Please step right in. Uh, we've been watching uh, the trial together, and uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about the families. Very often you see pictures of the family sitting and listening to the proceedings in the trial, and you said that they all seem pretty calm. They do seem calm now, Joanne, but this is uh, the second week of these hearings, and I'm sure that this has been, without question, the most traumatizing experience in their lives. A lot of uh, anger, a lot of frustration, resentments, hostilities, uh, and I'm sure that they will need to have someone uh, with an empathetic ear and uh, who they can relate to to ventilate these frustrations in a therapeutic setting with. What, what kind of things, if, if a family member were to come to you, what sort of things would you want them to think about to, to get over this horrible situation? Well, I think it's important that they know that they have license uh, to ventilate whatever frustrations they have, to deal with, uh, you know, things on their mind and to just feel that they are in an environment where they can just talk about those things freely without being uh, judged and just have an opportunity to get any frustrations of, of the minds that they may have. In dealing with, with families of people who've gone through trauma, what are some of the first things that they, that they say when they come to you? Are, are they angry? Are they afraid? What, what are the first emotions that come out? Fear, anger, resentment, and either one of those orders, depending on the person and the experiences. But usually you get fear, you get anger, you get resentment, you get frustration. Uh, you may feel indignity there if they feel as though the, uh, the trauma has not been dealt with adequately, uh, the legal authorities have not dealt with it appropriately, uh, they feel uh, rather persecuted in that manner. All of those emotions pretty much mixed in one. If, if fear is one of the first that comes across, they know that the man that uh, confessed to committing these crimes is in custody now. What do they have to be afraid of? It's just, it's, it would be comparable to uh, a post-traumatic stress uh, type of fear, where it's not so much a fear of the reality, it's just uh, the trauma of coping with it. And uh, it's, such, it's such a heinous, unbelievable act itself, and so it's not too far stretch to, to, to perceive it as something that could happen again, even though the person is in custody. Uh, just the trauma and heinous uh, uh, nature of the act itself uh, elicits that kind of fear and concern. What about the anger? How would you tell family members to, to deal with their anger? That anger is very appropriate in the circumstance. They have a right to be anger. Uh, it's legitimate anger. And just allow them free license to ventilate it, to ventilate the frustration. And the therapist, as a therapist, you're there to be empathetic and to, uh, to make sure that they can feel as though you understand this and that you support them in their attempts to ventilate their frustrations. And it doesn't surprise you when people come in this angry? Oh, not at all. It's a, it would be very, very rare indeed if they were not angry. Uh, that would surprise me and, and worry me. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll be back in just a minute to talk a little bit more about uh, what Dr. Carter feels the families may be going through watching this Je Jeffrey Dahmer trial. We're going to take a break and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Talking here in the media center uh, in the safety building where the Jeffrey Dahmer trial is going on in a courtroom not far from here, our guest this afternoon is Tyrone Carter, who's a psychologist, and we were talking a little bit about some of the emotions that the family members have gone through and are going through in sitting in the courtroom listening to this. Mm -hmm. And you said that they ought to go to someone and talk to get rid of some of these feelings. Who can they go to? Uh, can they go to anybody and talk? Or does it have to be a doctor or a psychologist? It doesn't have to be a doctor or a psychologist, but it has to be a person, I think, who has... Uh, a good therapeutic skills, perhaps a professional, uh, certainly a religious uh, 
person might qualify in that role, but certainly it has to be a person who has a good empathetic ear, a person who can uh, listen uh, objectively, and by objectively I mean not in the sense of being judgmental. Uh, you can't say, for example, you shouldn't feel that way, or you ought not to feel that way. Uh, the person has to perceive you as an accepted individual, and one who can empathize, not necessarily agree with, but empathize with and, and understand their frustrations. And I think that uh, many ministers, uh, many psychologists, uh, social workers, uh, psychiatrists and other people with mental health uh, training can afford, afford this. I do think it's important though that because of the severity of that trauma that they do work with a person who has some professional background in mental health uh, related with people with problems of this type. Even if they go to a professional for help, which you would recommend they do, they're still going to go home to family, they're still going to come in touch, come in counter with friends. What tips can you give family members and friends on being good listeners and being good supporters? Again, just uh, be there, be there to listen, uh, and without being judgmental, without being uh, subjective and, and trying to tell people how they should or should not feel. I even sometimes trying to say, I know how you feel. I think it's important for uh, you to give them the license to be unique in their feelings and frustrations and to be there to just offer understanding and acceptance. That's sometimes hard to do. People like to get their own opinions in when someone's talking to them. Right, and this is precisely why you do need to have a person with mental health background training because it's a lot less difficult for a person with that kind of training to do it well. Now, we've listened to hours and hours of testimony here. Uh, is it getting confusing for the families and for the viewers? Is it, is, it, is it getting a little bit boring at some times? I'm sure it is boring, and it's probably just another level of uh, frustration to have to deal with the, uh, the technology, the technical terminology, uh, the boredom, uh, the frustration, uh, probably the feeling of let's get on with it and have this uh, situation resolved in a just manner. Impatience, I guess you might say. And all of these uh, feelings are just additional levels of frustration for the families to have to cope with. When you've talked to families who go through various legal proceedings, no matter what it is, how do you tell them to cope with that, with the length and the time it takes to get through the legal process? Well, I think if they have some awareness as to what, what's expected as far as uh, a time duration, and they know that this is uh, something that has to be gone through and dealt with, and they've been pretty much fortified uh, to expect that, that helps. It's just a, one of the many, many frustrations that you've had to go through and will have to continue to go with for many, many years to come. Mm -hmm. what, what have you learned from this? What, what information can you take to your colleagues, uh, your psychological colleagues in other cities who I'm sure are going to ask you questions about what happened in Milwaukee? Mm -hmm. Well, certainly uh, it's, it's a very unique case. Uh, you know, the, armor, the whole situation is... It's abnormal behavior that goes beyond the realm of the normal abnormal behaviors, if you can, if you can follow that. And it's a very unique uh, situation where a person has, has committed heinous crime upon heinous crime. Uh, several different types of mental illnesses have been displayed, in my uh, opinion. And uh, the kind of situation which gives clinical uh, uh, opportunity for classical studies of uh, bizarre mental behaviors. Mm -hmm. Have you been asked questions by colleagues yet? Many, many times. Uh, you know, it's hard to go out without uh, meeting someone that has a question or some opinion, uh, wants your opinion about various aspects of the whole situation. And you tell them? I give opinions, <laughs> <laughs> depending on the mood I'm in. Sometimes I do give opinions. Uh, uh, it's, it's really something you have to understand. It's a very obvious and normal uh, topic that a person might want to discuss if you know that you are in mental health. And you try and uh, give as general but as precise and a thorough 
uh, an opinion as you can. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you, Dr. Carter. Thank We're you. Uh, going to uh, take a break in just a minute go back to channel 58 and when we come back we're going to talk just a little bit more about the Jeffrey Dahmer case and I'm going to ask Dr. Carter another question or two dealing with this case so we'll be back right after this the trial of Jeffrey Dahmer is going on and we're talking with psychologist Tyrone Carter about helping the families cope with the long process of the legal system and the horrible trauma they've been through before this and give us again the tips for a good listener some a friend family member clergyman who may be the person to whom a family member turns just to listen most important being there with the third ear to listen emphatically and non-judgmental be as objective as possible uh, not to try and uh, speak for the person, not to try and interpret what they're saying in your own words, but just to let them know that they are there, that you are there to serve them, to allow them a chance to ventilate their frustrations uh, in the way that they think is appropriate. Now, what if they say to you as the listener, I've told you my story, what do you think? I think it's appropriate to give an opinion uh, if they ask for that, but I, I think it's important that you not try and force your feelings and your impressions upon them. Mm -hmm. Now, we talked a little bit about many of the victims being black, the families, many of the families being black. Mm -hmm. Is it important that they go to an African-American counselor, or does it make any difference? I think it's important if the, if the client perceives it as important. I don't think it's necessarily important. What you want is a good, empathetic, uh, objective therapist. But there are people, because of their own experiences, may have a preference uh, the same, uh, same gender or same race, depending on their own personal experiences. Okay, thank you very much for talking with us. Tyrone Carter, a psychologist, talking a little bit about the effects of all this on the family and how someone can get help and how you can be a good listener if you were the person to whom a family member or even a person who's connected with us turns to for help. I'll turn it back over to Dan Jones, who's been following the trial all along. Dan? Joanne, thanks very much. I was just taking a moment to read from uh, a handbook prepared for prosecutors, and this is the chapter of the handbook that uh, deals with specifically how prosecutors, such as district attorneys, handle insanity cases and this might give us some information as to how uh, district attorney e. michael mccann may uh, go from this point forward when he begins his cross-examination because he wrote this chapter of the handbook for prosecutors he's talking about uh, when possible or when relevant rather get the get the uh, doctor to admit on cross-examination that the mere fact that behavior may be bizarre or repulsive in the eyes of the vast majority of citizens does not mean that the actor is insane, the actor referring to the defendant, of course. I'm going to read it. You know, this may, uh, this may not be incredibly uh, enlightening, but I think it's extremely interesting. He also says uh, that the importance and the impact of lay evidence, and when he says lay evidence, he's talking specifically about uh, the police evidence that we've heard so far in this case. The importance and the impact of lay evidence that the defendant acted normally at work, conversed rationally with friends and family before the arrest, was intelligently aware of time, place, and circumstance with arresting, conveying, and interrogating officers cannot be overstressed. So he'll probably he'll probably touch on that to show that Dahmer could control his behavior, behavior, and he was not insane. Get the defense psychiatrist to admit that some persons will fake mental illness to avoid the penalty of the criminal law, and in some cases, even those who fake can fool the psychiatrist. He might touch on that. 
get the psychiatrist to admit that his opinion is hinged on the truthfulness of the information he receives from the defendant and that if such information is false, then maybe his opinion would be unfounded. Uh, a couple more we'll touch on. sure that uh, the recess doesn't end. As soon as it does, we'll immediately go back to the courtroom, but I thought this might be interesting. McCann uh, tells other prosecutors that as a driver on his way to his office passes through a series of intersections with roads leading in various directions, the criminal in his initiation and execution of a crime must purposely move to his objective and not go down roads that lead elsewhere. On cross-examination of the defense psychiatrist, the doctor who was just testifying, the prosecutor should point out at each juncture at which the accused had a multiplicity of non-criminal options before him, which he could have chosen to do or could have simply happened to do, but that he chose not to do. By pointing out through cross-examination the numerous options rejected in favor of the course actually chosen, the prosecutor emphasizes the purposive aspect of the defendant's action. McCann might, might take this tack to point out that, that Dahmer numerous times had uh, sexual relations and one-night stands with different people and did not kill them, but in 15, 16 times, he did. McCann may point out that in the past, he could control his behavior. He had that option before. He did not choose it. He chose the criminal behavior. Secure the admission from the doctor that he has never seen the defendant in a mentally diseased condition or unable to tell right from wrong. It'll be interesting to see if McCann uh, asked, the, asked the doctor that question. In your interviews with Jeffrey Dahmer, doctor, have you ever seen him in a mentally distressed condition? When the doctor begins uh, testifying again, Gerald Boyle is expected to ask him a, uh, a few more questions. Boyle said he could probably wrap, up, uh, wrap it up in about five minutes. That's when McCann takes over. It will be interesting to see if District Attorney E. Michael McCann handles this uh, questioning or if he turns this over to uh, one of his assistants. What we'll do is uh, I notice that there's nothing going on in the courtroom right now. It probably will get underway in just a few minutes, so why don't we take a break and then come back in just a minute.